The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, May 1st at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. A guest with us this morning. My name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get the privilege again this morning of, of leading us together in our time in God's Word. Um, and as we get ready to jump in there, let me, let me tell you a story, and some of these stories take on mythical proportions, so I can't vouch for the complete truthfulness of it, but it's a good story anyway, right? Uh, the story as I have heard it goes like this. Um, one afternoon... Steve Jobs, so I'm already dating the story, right? Steve Jobs walked into a communal space in the Apple headquarters where a number of employees had gathered for a break, and he went in supposedly to get himself a bagel, and he walked in, and he went to where the food was, and everybody kind of notices it's Steve Jobs, right? Um, And he stops, and he looks at all the employees in the room, and he asks them a question. He looks at him and he says, who is the most powerful person in the world? Now, if you were an Apple employee at the time, sitting in the break room, right? It's like a Sunday school question, like, you know, who's this about? Jesus. Like, who's the most powerful person? You. You know, like, I don't know the tone with which he asked the question. You know, I don't really know. But the story, and there's all kinds of stories about men and women like Steve Jobs, goes like this. He asked them, who's the most powerful person in the world? Nervously, I'm sure employees start throwing out names. At the time, Nelson Mandela had been recently released from in prison, and so his name was thrown out, and amongst others, and, and Steve Jobs looked at them all in the room and said, no, you're all wrong. And they probably all thought they were going to get fired, too, because I'm sure they were trying, do I say him? Do I say somebody else? Like, what do you do? He said, you're all wrong. He said, the most powerful person in the world is the storyteller. The storyteller gets to set the vision, the values, and the agenda for an entire generation to come. I think he proved his point pretty well. There was a Hollywood screenwriter who was writing about storytelling, and he said this. He said, in our culture, he who tells the best story wins. Wins what? Well, wins the hearts, the minds, the dreams, the hopes, the assurances, the lives of the people that it's communicating to. In a commercial industry, it wins the dollars, and it wins the allegiance. And so you and I have spent time over the last several weeks, a couple of months, really looking at God's story. And we've been looking at it because the hearts and lives of so many, and not just so many in in the world around us, but so many in the church have been captivated by rival stories. Rival stories that are setting the agendas, rival stories that are setting the vision, rival stories that are defining the values, rival stories that are setting the definition of what it means to be human, what it really means to be worthwhile. And we've been suffering for it. You see, the Christian story doesn't seem to be the most compelling and therefore the most directing and the defining story in our culture and at times to our own dismay, even within the church. 
Mark Sayers is an Australian pastor, but really he's probably most known for his, his social commentary and his philosophical critique. And Mark Sayers was writing about this, and, and he said that the strategy taken by churches, and whether you think about churches taking a strategy and thinking about churches attracting people, like an attractional church, a big church, or a missional church, or a house church, or whatever strategy, it doesn't matter. He said the strategies that the church has taken have been neutered because the people inside the churches are suffering from an identity crisis. They seem filled with insecurity about who they are and what difference their faith makes in their everyday life. Jesus' mandate to go out and to preach the gospel seems to have been replaced by the maxim, go into the world and convince people that you're not a Christian dork. Rival stories have captured the hearts and the minds, even of God's people, such to the degree that understanding who we are has sent us into an identity crisis. Being God's people in the world means making sure that those around us don't think I'm just weird. And Sayer says he's traveled the world, he's been a consultant, he's been a teacher, he's a writer, and he's met with pastors and churches from all nations and in all places and all types and styles. And he says it's almost universal. It doesn't matter what the strategy or, or the style of the church I may go and be with, that the problems within the church and the hearts of the people are all the same. People are often far more preoccupied with what the brand of their SUV says about who they are, what the zip code or the address says about who they are. Young people, he said, around the world inside the church, crippled with the overwhelming pressure and anxiety in the world today to be worthwhile, to be famous, to be seen as sexy, cool, a worthwhile human being, he said. And that phrase, it, it captured my mind as I was reading it because it's not just young people, it's, it's all of us. We, we all live with this nagging sense of these competing stories, these rival maps of life trying to define for us what it means to be a worthwhile human. And the effects are all around us. And it's not just limited to those that are sitting in the chairs or in the pews. Sayers is equally clear about the impact that these rival stories are having in the hearts and the lives of, of ministry leaders and pastors. All around the world, he said, it doesn't matter what kind of church it, it is, pastors feel the unrelenting pressure to continue to keep up. The pressure to be cool, to look a certain way, to seem fresh constantly now under the weight of trying to manage not a ministry that God has given them, but an online brand that they've begun to build. As a pastor, he says it's very easy for us to confuse our sense of calling with managing an online persona. All of this together, Sayers says, is collectively leading us to living lives that have stopped speaking something beautiful to the world around us. The quest, he says, to be cool or accepted, the, the quest for whatever status where you are confers to you and the people around you that you're worthwhile, the quest for whatever that is has replaced the quest for holiness or Christ-likeness amongst God's people. 
And this quest has come from a rival story, a, a story that is redefining what it means to be human, what it means to be worthwhile. And I've been captivated by this, which is why we've been going through Genesis chapters 1 through 3. If we're going to get back to living a life in such a way that it speaks of something beautiful and alternative worth pursuing, we have to go back to God's story that shapes and defines who we are, what it means to be human, what it truly means to be human. We have to go back to his map that gives shape and guidance to our lives that leads not to dehumanizing, but to flourishing. And if we're going to do it, and we go back and begin to look at it, and if we're going to live according to this story, and we're going to understand this story, we're going to have to know and communicate and live according to the whole story, not just part of it. See, one of the reasons I think it's so easy even for our hearts and minds to be captivated by by rival stories of, of thriving and rival maps and paths to flourishing is because in the church we've shrunk the full story down. We've taken the story of redemption, God's story that he has been writing, and we've made it about part of the story. We've made it about sin and salvation. We've made it about the fall and about the cross. Essential, beautiful. There's no good news without it. But it's not the whole story. It's just part of the story. And by shrinking the story down to just the fall and the cross, to just sin and salvation, it leaves even God's people here sitting in this room just waiting for death to show up and what's going to be after it. Because the story is really about getting sins forgiven. That's it. But it's not the whole story. It makes even communicating the good news awkward to a watching world because you've got to start, if you start in half the story, you start with them being sinners. No one likes to hear that, right? It's true as it is. How well of an ear does that get you? So what happens? The church begins to figure out how to say it in a more palatable way and we end up with something so thin it's not even true anymore. If we're going to live lives as God has designed and as God has called and as God has created according to his story of what it means to be human, we're going to have to know and to live the whole story. God started the story at creation, a creation that he declared was good, a creation that he blessed, a creation that defines for you and I what it actually means to be human. And so we have to keep going back to that story if you and I are actually going to live this life with real hope. And so what I want to do this morning is we're going to be kind of coming to an end of the next couple of weeks of our journey through these first three chapters. And what I want to do this morning is, is a little bit of a kind of a review, but kind of an encapsulation. I want to take a bit of what we've said over the last several weeks about what it means to be human, and I want to kind of string it all together in, at one time, and then try to bring it to a bit of a sharper point. Try to really sharpen what that actually means for how you and I then begin to walk out of here and see ourselves and see those around us, okay? So it's going to be a bit of a, a, bit of a review, but trying to bring it to a sharper point, all right? First big thing we, we've talked about, and we've said over and over, but it, it is the foundation, it is the grounds for this reality, is that the Christian story very loudly and very proudly declares that to be human is to bear God's image, 
is to be God's image bearer, to be inherently and irrevocably endowed with the dignity and honor that comes from God's character. This reality is essential for a Christian understanding of what it means to be human, an essential understanding for what it means to live according to God's story, to God's map that leads to thriving. It's essential. This truth has nourished and withstood massive social change. It stood as a challenge to centuries, millennia of challenges to God's truth and human thriving. It's essential to understanding and beginning to live according to God's story of what it means to be human. All right, there was a, a, a Stoic philosopher named Senecus who says it's madness how often we, to gain the fruit, cut down the tree. It's crazy how often to get the fruit, we'll cut the very thing down that supplies it, and we live in a society today that continues to live off the fruit of the Christian story while simultaneously cutting down the tree that supplies it and nourishes it. And you and I have to be aware of this. This reality that you and I are image bearers of God is the foundation for all that is good and right about how you and I see and understand it's each other in the world that we live in. How you are going to engage some of the most critical issues of our day stem directly from what you believe the image of God is. What you believe about being an image bearer or the imago Dei. That's going to shape how you interact not only with yourself, but with your world around you, right? So let's jump back into Genesis chapter 1, and let's just string what we've said together and, and try to bring it to a point, right? Genesis chapter 1, the foundational passage we have for this is here. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image and after our likeness. So they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move on the earth. And God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so the first thing we looked at when we began to narrow in on this idea of being an image bearer essential to understanding what it means to be human is understanding that the Imago Dei, you being an image bearer, is tied to who God is as creator. That's where it comes from. That's what begins to give shape and definition to it. It's tied to him as creator. God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Right? Just think about that. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. He who is holy and totally unlike any of his creation. The triune God who is one in nature, three in persons, eternal. He said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. To the Imago Dei, the truth that you are an image bearer, says that all humanity has the creator's image stamped in them. All humanity has the creator's image stamped in them. On one hand, this differentiates you and I as humanity, as, as male and female, from the rest of God's creation, from everything else that God created. This is a differentiating fact between us. We and we alone, as God's created beings, bear his image. 
And we've talked throughout this series about how that brings with it a a profound humility when you begin to understand it because we realize that we are part of his creation. We are created, right? Which means we're therefore dependent beings. We're dependent upon our creator. We have limits. We're not entirely self-sufficient. Now, there are a couple of more things in the first three chapters of Genesis that deal with this humility, and and we're going to deal with those in the last two things that we're going to do, and that's the reality of God instituting Sabbath for our good as a reminder of the profound humility that comes of being created, being created beings, and then the reality of death, which speaks again to our profound humility, and I know next week is Mother's Day, so I don't know which one I'll do. But you should just be forewarned. One of those is coming probably on Mother's Day, right? So we're not going to close RH Kids on Mother's Day. We've done that before. Some of you don't remember that. It's a bad mistake. But um, one of those is coming. Because there's a profound humility that comes when you realize and, and understand that you are an image bearer. But at the same time, and where we'll spend most of our time as we kind of sharpen this thing down in very direct and even more pointed ways is that Being an image bearer brings with it an immense dignity. It's a dignity that's given to us by God as those and those alone in his entire created order that bear his image. It's a dignity that comes not by anything you do to earn it, not by the job you have, the city you're from, the family you're from, the income you get, there's nothing about you that has earned or deserved this dignity. It's given to you by your creator. The image of God, the imago Dei, it's the truth that all humanity, all humanity, has the creator's image and likeness stamped in them. And this dignity, this imago Dei, it's a holistic vision of what it means to be human. It's holistic. And when we try to minimize it or reduce it, we get into trouble, right? We talked about this weeks ago when we first started going through this. Again, this is just a reminder. So those of you that have kind of jumped in, you're kind of getting it all at one time. Throughout history, theologians and philosophers have tried to understand and wrestle with what it means to be in his image. What does that really pertain? Like, what is that? Some have said that you can boil that down to the fact that we're rational creatures. You know, God thinks... God has imagination, God has cognition, the fact that he created us in his image and likeness, he gave us that same capacity like him. We're rational creatures with cognitive ability. Well, that's true, but it's more than that. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. And other philosophers and theologians have said, yeah, 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 but at the same time, God is three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. For all of eternity, God has existed in relationship with himself, and he creates us in his image and after his likeness, and we, and we alone in all of creation, have this kind of capacity for this kind of deep relationship with one another, with creation itself, and with God himself. That's, in essence, what it means to be created in his image, an image bearer. Well, that's true. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. And others have said, you know, when you think about what it means to be in his image and after his likeness, you know, God has dominion and authority over all of his creation as creator. And he has given us, humanity, man, an element of that responsibility and authority and dominion. He's given us a job, a responsibility to steward his created order, to unfold the potential that he put in it, 
right? That capacity and responsibility is what it means to be in his image and after his likeness. Again, yes. It's not less than that, but it's so much more. It's all of these things holistically working together that speak of the reflective image of God in us. When we try to minimize it to any one of those things, we get into a lot of trouble. When we try to minimize it, for example, to the fact that we have a cognitive ability and a rationality that speaks of God's character and rationality, what happens in the heart when we consider those who may have an impaired cognitive ability or rational ability, who biologically are not able to to think and, and reason with an impairment in the way that you and I are? Are they somehow less of the image of God? Are they somehow less human? What about those in our lives and in the world around us who may suffer from a crippling anxiety and, and maybe even a relational attachment disorder and aren't able to have the kind of relationships that we're talking about when we say it's the image of God and our capacity to have a relationship with one another and with him. And there are some people who, who don't have that capacity because of a, a disorder or a struggle they may have. Are they somehow less the image of God? Are they somehow less human? What about those who, who may not be able, as you define it, to contribute to the well-being and the stewarding of the world due to a physical, a mental, emotional, or some kind of, of struggle or, or disorder they may have? Are, are, are they somehow less the image of God because they don't contribute in the same way in their responsibility? Whenever we end up minimizing and not understanding holistically what it means to be created in the image and after the likeness of God, we find ourselves in all kinds of problems when we think about what it means to be human and understand how we interact with the world around us. As image bearers, we've been given these dimensions and gifts that we would reflect and represent our creator in the world. And the dangers that I was just talking about exist because of the presence of sin. That's why, as we were going through God's story, we get to Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent questioned God's goodness and therefore the goodness of his word and the goodness of his plan for man. He tempted man to take their lives and to take their story into their own hands, define it for themselves. And as we read and discovered, their rebellion ushered sin into God's good world. And sin has negatively impacted every aspect of creation ever since. In particular, thinking about what it means to be human and the image bearers, sin has caused every person who has been born since that moment in the garden to be born with a sin nature. A sin nature that does not displace the image of God. Remember that? We don't lose the image of God, but it's a sin nature that distorts it, that tarnishes it, that tarnishes that reflection with which we were created to reflect. Ever since the garden, each of us has been born with that sin nature. And that sin nature causes us to misuse our rationality. Now with the rationality and the cognition that we have, we deny God as our creator. We create for ourselves alternative stories and alternative paths to thriving and joy. We exalt ourselves in our own pride. We misuse our capacity for relationship as we show partiality to others, as we envy others, gossip about others, even choose to take the life of others. 
We misuse that responsibility that God gave us to have dominion and steward, and we use it for ourselves and greed or power or exploitation. Right now, the sin nature has tarnished that image reflection, and what it means to be human now is being redefined by different categories and terms. Being an image bearer of God is an all-defining reality for us. Though it's a frail and imperfect thing at the moment, the God of the universe created each of us to be a reflection of him. And here's the problem we've been seeing over and over again as we've been kind of going through this and trying to come at it from different points and different angles. In our world, as, as selfish as we are, as busy and preoccupied as we allow ourselves to be, as that sin nature is still being worked out of us by grace, we're all too often still blind to the reflection of God, the image of God, and the others around us. And this blindness, because of our own sin, has devastating consequences. And so here's what I want to do with the time we have left. I want to bring what we have said, and I tried to just hit high points of the last probably six weeks in, in one moment. I want to bring it down to as appointed a place as I can bring it. And I want us to consider in, in very personal, practical, defined ways how God's story, how the reality is he defines being human as an image bearer. How does that practically intersect with our life today? How does the Imago Day begin to guide us in the way we understand ourselves and those around us? So here's a, a big statement that we're then going to kind of just pick apart, just point by point, kind of go through it. Here it is. Because all humans are created in God's image, that's what we find in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, because all humans are created in God's image, we must uphold the full dignity, value, and worth of every single human being. Massive statement. What that means is that amongst God's people, the way we understand ourselves and the way we live in the world around us, there can be zero space for partiality of any kind. Partiality is a massive word. It's a big word, but it's a helpful word as we begin to unpack it. The Imago Dei speaks to us, one, of who we are, but two, how we view and see those around us. And if we truly take it to mean what it means for who we are, it means that as God's people, we can make no space for seeing other people as less than this and living accordingly. Watch this. Here's how we tend to do it. I'm just going to go through them all. I want you to feel the weight of how this sits. And at the same time, the freedom I, I think it brings and how not only we understand ourselves, but those around us. There can be no space for partiality in issues of gender, right? Because God created humans, male and female, men and women are equal in dignity, value, and worth. There can be zero space for partiality on the basis of gender, now, all of these, when I talk about partiality, we're going to get a whole list of them. They all have a corresponding ism, if you're into the isms. There, there's no, there can be no space because of the Imago Dei for sexism in either direction. No space. Because the scriptures talk of unborn children as human persons, every child born or unborn has full dignity, value, and worth. There can be no space for partiality in development. 
partiality based on developmental status. You see, God is the creator. He alone sets the value of a life. So we can even move beyond talking about the issues of the unborn and move into how you and I treat each other even here right now. And the taking of another's life is an expression of partiality towards someone else based on my definition of value. Now we're getting to issues like, like murder. There can be no space. Leviticus 19 verse 32 says, you shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord. You know what it means? If we really believe in the Imago Dei, it means that all persons, no matter of their age, have equal dignity, value, and worth. If there is a story that is redefining what it means to be a human, worthwhile as a human, that leads to utter dehumanization in our day-to-day. It's the story that's defining the value of those who are older. It's an Imago Dei issue. How you think about the various ethical and moral circumstances of the world we live in, go back to, have to start from what you believe about the Imago Dei. There can be no partiality shown to someone else on the basis of age or ageism, right? If you like the isms. Same thing goes not just for age, but for ability. If God is the author of life, if if he is that which we believe him to be, that means we must uphold the full dignity, value, and worth of every human regardless of their cognitive or physical ability or disability. Every single one. 1 John 3.17. We got a lot of these, so I'm going to keep going. 1 John 3.17, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? The Imago Dei, the reality of you and I are image bearers, means that you and I must uphold the full dignity, value, and worth of every human being of whatever economic or class status they may have, period. There can be no partiality on the basis of economics in either direction. Now we're talking about how we view, in particular in our hearts, which is only going to give way to how we live, but how we view in our hearts the destitute, the homeless, those of lower income, those of higher income. It goes both ways. There can be no space for partiality in our hearts that gives way to our treatment of another human being that is based in any way upon their social or their economic status. It is dehumanizing. It is defacing of the Imago Dei. It's an Imago Dei issue. It's the same thing with regard to ethnicity. Acts 10.34, I love it. Peter's preaching. Listen to Peter. Peter opens his mouth and he says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. God as the author of life shows no partiality on the basis of ethnicity. Where you were born or what color your skin is. 
That means that you and I, if we believe that he is the author of life and we are all his image bearers, we must uphold the full dignity, value, and worth of every human being of every ethnicity, which means there can be no partiality, no space. We should be pushing back in our hearts the space that other stories have created for us to extend some level of partiality towards someone else based on ethnicity or skin color or whatever it is that's part of that. That is a dehumanizing story that is redefining in a false way what it means to be human that does not lead to thriving. It's an Imago Day issue first. If you're not going here to begin to build your understanding of how we talk, relate, and live in light of these things, you're missing the full story. It starts here. And here's the thing. If sin doesn't remove the Imago Day. If sin tarnishes the image of God, but it doesn't remove the image of God, which is an amazing thing, that means we must uphold the full dignity, value, and worth of every human being regardless of their past sinful history. That includes criminal history, sexual history. Now we're thinking about how we deal with the incarcerated, the formerly incarcerated, how we deal with those that may have been involved in the the adult industry, how we deal with people who are tied up in, in various aspects of sexual immorality, it's everything. If sin doesn't remove that image, it means the image of God is there. And you and I have to begin to see people this way. It's very easy, and everybody has their own. I mean, some of these are gonna feel more personal to some of you than others, and we all have different spaces in our heart where the sin nature wants to dehumanize. It's what it does. It doesn't like flash a light that says, okay, dehumanize this person. No, it just tells a rival story that makes you feel happy. And what happens is it dehumanizes someone else. It continues to deface the image of God in another person. And if sin doesn't remove that image, it means that regardless of past or present sinful patterns, we have to see and uphold the value and dignity and worth of every person especially when it comes in our hearts. This gets into relationship status too, right? Because God ordains both marriage and singleness. We believe in the full dignity, value, and worth of every individual regardless of their marital or relational status. A difficult thing, I understand. Last week, we spent an entire morning talking about the institution of marriage and God's building of marriage in the, in the creation story. It's a very difficult thing to do knowing that a large percentage of people present and listening are not married. But God, if there's ever been a dignifying act by God to dignify singleness, it was in sending his son. Who never had a wife, never had biological children, never engaged in sexual intimacy as a married man. It is fully human. Fully human. Sam Alberry, I've told you before, I think he's probably my favorite writer on all things Imago Day, right? He, he's t- different books have happened to touch on all these things unintentionally. I think we should put them all together at some point, but all, all together. But he wrote a book recently, and it came out during COVID, so it didn't get the press and the push that most books get. But it's called The Seven Myths of Singleness. And I'm about halfway through it. And it is one of the best books I have picked up probably in the last two years. And it really should be read by all married families, pastors in the church. 
Sam is a pastor who has struggled with same-sex attraction his entire life. He understands this reality in a way that, that some of us don't, but he writes about the myths that are part of that, I would call, kind of a dark underbelly in the evangelical church when it comes to how we see and understand those who aren't married. Some by choice, some by, by, by loss. We're talking about widows here as well. And I would encourage you to go and pick up the book and read it. One of the things he said that stood out to me, I'll just read it to you this way. He said, at the end, talking about the, at the end, really, when it comes to life, right? At the end, none of us are going to be able to lean on another person, whether a spouse or a friend, to walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. At some point, all of you who are married, one of you is probably going to end up in here unmarried in your life. You're probably both not going to die at the exact same time. You will again be single. In the end, we're not all going to have a spouse or a friend to walk us through the valley of the shadow of death. He said, only Jesus can be our companion there. And when each of us realizes that no earthly relationship or circumstance can fill our soul, it brings us to a liberating truth. The key to contentment as a single person is not to try to make singleness into something that will satisfy me. It's to find contentment in Christ as a single person. And the key to contentment as a married person is not trying to build a marriage that can make us content. It's to find contentment in Jesus as a married person, right? So there can be no space and partiality displayed in our heart or, or even through our lives with regard to relationship status. As you keep reading God's story, it's one thing after another, and you begin to see that the Imago Dei is far more than a a theological truth, a category. It's a defining reality for what it means to be human. And the Imago Dei demands love out of us over power. You read the story, God condemns hatred of others and commands love, and he leaves no space for any form of abuse, be it physical, sexual, verbal, spiritual, relational, or psychological. Over and over again, he demands love. Love and sacrifice. James 1.27, James says this, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Here's the thing about that as a pastor. If I'm going to be really honest, when we come to James 1.27, we tend to What's the best way to say it? We tend to uh, sit and give weight to the last part of James 1.27. The universality of the command of the church to keep yourself unstained from sin. But the command right before it is just as universal to the church. The command to visit the orphan and the widow. And if we had the time, I would encourage you to go this week and you can do it. You can do it on the computer. You can look it up. If you were to go and understand how the New Testament uses that word visit, it's not what you and I think. It's not about just picking a time and going down to uh, the, the Richmond City Prison and getting your name on a, on a waiting list and going in and seeing and visiting and talking with somebody. That word visit is used more often in the New Testament of God and Jesus than it is in this category. It's talking about how God has visited us by his son. How in his son he has come and taken responsibility for us. That's the weight that the word is being used with here by James. There's a responsibility that we have 
as God's image bearers to take responsibility for the orphan and the widow. Because he visited us in his son and cared for us. We have this calling as his image bearers to go and take responsibility for some of the most forgotten image bearers around us. Because that's truly what the incarcerated, the orphan, and, and the widow are. And, I, and I'll say this because we don't have a lot of time. But I'll say this as you, as you listened earlier about the, the adoption and orphan care ministry. I, I just, there are a few things in the life of Redemption Hill Global missions to the unreached is, is one, but the priority and the internal passion displayed by, by you, by, by this church, for all things related to children, the unborn, the orphan, families, it, it's been staggering. We didn't do it. We didn't like start and say, this is going to be what we do. It's what God did. And the repeated sacrifice that so many of you have made in, in these things, it, it truly is one of the clearest reflections of Jesus that's alive and at work in the church. Because if we're going to be honest, the orphan, or as the Bible will often say, the fatherless, are some of the most forgotten image bearers very close and near to us today. And the way that this church, which is you guys, we didn't, again, we didn't say, go, do, you guys did this. The way that the love and the responsibility to visit in the New Testament biblical sense has been shown by you is one of the most humbling things for me as I think back over what God's done in almost 15 years here. That's what James is, is talking about. Lastly, I'll, I'll give you this one, right? Because we can't miss it. There can be no partiality that we show with respect to the gospel. Revelation 20 reminds us that God is the final judge of all humans. So believing in the full dignity, value, and worth of every human being commits us as his people to making disciples of all nations by sharing the eternal hope found in the gospel and calling all people to repentance and faith in Jesus and to loving our neighbors as ourselves. Even that ultimately becomes an Imago Dei issue. See, sin is always trying to dehumanize it's always offering up a rival story that promises something it can't deliver but ultimately leads in dehumanizing. All those negatives, all those isms, right? They continue to tarnish the image and likeness of God. But you hear all that and think, how in the world are we actually to be able to live that way? Like, I get it, I feel the weight, but at the same time, I understand and sense my own weakness there the spaces in my own heart where I'm given to dehumanizing something based on, dehumanizing someone else based on some external criteria that ought not be. Well, this is where the last part of Genesis chapter, chapter three becomes so important. When God promises and makes that promise that a day was going to come when he was going to send one, the seed of the woman who would fully and finally crush the head of the deceiver and the serpent. You see, it's in Jesus, fully God and fully man, that we see the perfect expression of the Imago Dei in human form, the fullness of the promise. In fact, Paul says it this way in Colossians 1, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, 
Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, look at this, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Reconciling all things to himself. That's you and I, tarnished image bearers, who through one man, Adam, we received a sinful nature that distorts and tarnishes the image of God. But now, by grace, through one man, Jesus, redemption and restoration comes. Restoration of that image. The process of the ongoing work of God by his spirit and his word removing the tarnish that sin has left on our reflection. He took our sin upon himself and paid our debts so that by grace, through faith in him, that image could be restored. That reflection could begin to brighten. We would begin to be able to see ourselves once again more clearly according to God's story and see those in the world around us again more clearly according to who he has made them. Friends, he is at work redeeming that rationality that you and I by grace now might love his ways and love his thoughts. Redeeming that relational capacity he gave us now to love and push away that partiality so that we could sacrifice and serve one another. Redeeming that responsibility he gave us as his image bearers so that we could go out with the intent of unfolding the potential that he has put in all of his created order. That we may be able to steward his created order conscientiously in the lives of other people and in the world around us. That his presence might be there as we go and we would be living reflections of him. And we could put our hands to cultivating practices and patterns that honor who God has made all people to be. This happens, friends, as we continue to prioritize being his apprentices, being with him that we might become more like him, that we might continue to increasingly reflect that which he created us to reflect and redeemed us to reflect. Friends, that will be the most compelling story. It's not so much our words, it's, it's not even so much sometimes what we write or, or how you communicate on Facebook or whatever. The most compelling story the world needs is you. Being Jesus' apprentice, by grace, through faith, and the power of his word and spirit, increasingly reflecting the image of the one who created you, and seeing with increasing clarity the humanity, the dignity, and the value of everyone around you. We begin to see that and live accordingly. That is a story that will captivate the world around us. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to respond to God's word this morning. Father, it's, um, it's so easy to take realities like being created in your image and after your likeness and, and turn them into theological categories and, and theological truths that somehow get separated and cut off from our understanding of who we are and who you are. 
But we need to be captivated again by the reality that you created us image bearers. That you sent your son to die in our place for our sins to redeem our reflection of you to this world. God, we need you to help us to see again more clearly who we are, who those around us are by your intention in creation, that we might not only see them rightly, but now begin to reflect you clearly and appropriately in how we engage. Lord, it takes your spirit to do this work in us, and in that end, we ask that you would do what only you can do. And you would do it in us for Jesus' good name and for our joy. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.